I'm going to ask you to open with me this morning your Bibles to the book of Exodus chapter 20. And today we're going to continue in our series that we've been going through recently called The Teacher, where we've been looking at the famous teachings that God gave His people known as the Ten Commandments. And one of the things that we've been doing each week is we've been reading through these commandments aloud as just a way to kind of get them in our souls. And so I'm going to invite you, all who can, all who will, to stand with me this morning in reverence to the reading of God's Word. And if you're unable to stand, you feel free to reverence the Word of God from your seats right there where you are. Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. It says, Then God spoke all of these words, saying, I am the Lord your God. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water underneath the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male or female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." Honoring your father and mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Let's pray this morning. Lord, I thank you for your word. It is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. God, I come this morning recognizing, Lord, my weakness and my inability to be able to speak your truth today. But God, I pray, Lord, through your Holy Spirit, Lord, I ask, would you bless the reading of your word today? God, I pray that you would speak to people all over this room. That God, that you're just even the truth of your word would draw people to you, God. Lord, we ask, God, that you would be glorified this morning. Give us ears to hear, O oh God. Pray, Lord, you put your words in my mouth. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, as we've said in the last several weeks, as we've been walking through these Ten Commandments, that all of the Ten Commandments, they basically teach us three important lessons. They show us who God is. They show us God's design for humanity and they show us our sin and ultimately our need to seek God for His mercy and His grace and His forgiveness. Now, usually each one of these weeks, I usually start off with kind of a funny story that pertains to the uh, topic that we're going to talk about this morning. I'm not really going to be able to do that, but I will tell you a funny story that has nothing to do with our topic. So uh, this past week, uh, my wife was doing our Bible study time with our children and she was talking about Jacob wrestling uh, with the angel of the Lord in 
the wilderness. And she goes through this great lesson, basically, and how, it, how after this, his name was changed to Israel, and that's how we get the nation of Israel. And this, this whole, he was the last of the patriarchs there. And, I mean, it's a, it's a big deal, a lot going on in this story. And then she pauses. She said, now, guys, are, y'all have any questions? And immediately, Jackson, our middle son, uh, raises his hand up. And, and you, hey, this is, there's no telling what he may ask. And what only a little boy could ask is the one thing that was, that was really boggling his mind this whole lesson was, Mama, who started the fight? <laughs> so, and Kimberly said then after that, they went on to mimic that. Isaiah and Jackson in the living room wrestling uh, as Jacob and the angel of the Lord did. So, uh, that has nothing to do with what we're going to talk about today, but I thought I'd share that with you. But uh, this morning, we're going to look at the sixth commandment, which honestly it's good for us to laugh here a little bit at the beginning because it is hard. This is a very sobering topic. Today, we're going to look at verse 13, which is, You shall not murder. You know, in just four simple words, God not only gives us a commandment to follow here, but He also reminds us of the possibility of one of the most heinous sins against another person that can be committed. You know, the word murder itself kind of chills our spines, even to hear it. And if I'm honest, I felt the heaviness of this topic even as I prepared this message this week. You know, the the sobriety that comes over us when we hear the topic murder is something that's not by accident. It's, It's within the design of God for us to be creatures, to be those who are created in His image, to desire life. And so to think of someone taking another person's life uh, unjustly is something that naturally we kind of recoil against. And, and that's, that's not by accident. That's in the design of God. And so when a human life is unjustly taken, you know, it's not just the ending of one person's life, but often it's a destruction of an entire family. You know, I saw this destruction firsthand when I was pastoring in northwest uh, Alabama. I had a friend of mine, his name was Adam, who came to faith in Christ. He came to faith in Christ on an Easter Sunday after a Saturday turkey hunt. It's one of my favorite stories uh, to tell. But Adam came to faith in Christ, and, and I started to disciple him, started to, to help him learn what it looks like uh, to grow in this new relationship with God. And, and he was growing in his walk with God, but you could tell that there was still something nagging his soul. There was still something that was unsaid. And then a few months after uh, he was saved, we went fishing one night there uh, in in, uh, Smith Lake, there Lewis Smith Lake in uh, North Alabama. And as we were fishing, he told me the story that about a year prior to him coming to know the Lord is that his parents were caught in a love triangle that sadly ended in his father being brutally murdered. As he started to talk about it, you could see his face get angry all over again. Even though that his father's murderer was behind uh, bars, it still uh, caused this anger to rise up within him. And, And he would say how badly he wished he could just get his hands on that man. You see, when this father died, something inside of my friend died also. And without the help of God, he was going to live angry the rest of his life. Now, I will say that God brought much freedom to that situation, and he was ultimately able to find the peace that only God can give. And I know that even within this church family, we have those who have tragically had to deal with the injustice of murder. But even if you're here this morning and you've not experienced this personally, we pray that you never do. All of us, 
can understand the wrongness of murder according to God's design within us. But you know, if we look inside of God's word, we find out so much more about this great commandment. And so today, like we've been doing each week, we're going to try to answer two major questions to help us understand this commandment. So we're going to jump right in today. Our first question we need to answer today is, what does the commandment to not murder mean? Now, in some ways, we immediately ask that question. You feel, well, Pastor, I know the answer to that. It means to not kill someone unjustly. But the reality is the command to not murder is much more complex than just that simple answer. I want to give you a couple of facts to help us understand that this morning. The first fact that we need to know about God's command to not murder is that it reveals to us that every human life is special to God. You know, the clear, simple truth in Scripture is that every human being is created uniquely special because they've been given the image of God. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, we see God giving humanity His image at creation. He said, God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him male and female. He created them. The, the word in the Hebrew for image means likeness. Basically, of all that God created in the heavens and the earth, nothing bears the likeness and the semblance to God like humanity. In the same way that you can see the similarities uh, in genetics from parents to children, you can see a very similar thing inside of the image of God. Now, obviously, at a lesser level, we are not like God, we are not God, but we bear the traits. There are things about the humanity, about human life, that points back to God that is not given to anything else in creation. And so to kill someone is to destroy an image bearer of God. In some sense, it is, to, it is to destroy a sculpture that has been created by the hands of God. In fact, the truth is affirmed in Genesis 9-6 that when just after the flood, the great flood, that God told Noah that the shedding of man's blood, that murder was worthy of capital punishment. He said, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God, he created man. Now, we'll say this, and I, I'm, we're going to talk about capital punishment in a few moments. But right here, the main thing that we need to see in this is that God was saying the main reason that this sin is worthy of capital punishment is because you are destroying someone created in the image of God. They're not just a living person. They're not just a thing. They are special to God. And this is why abortion at any level is murder in the eyes of God. Because a baby bears the image of God at the moment of conception. In Jeremiah 1.5, God spoke to Jeremiah about how he existed in the mind and heart of God before he was ever even created. He said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you and I had appointed you a prophet to the nations. See, this passage reminds us that before Jeremiah was even born, he already had a name, he had a purpose, he even had an eternal soul, all of which are unique to the image of God. And so to kill a child at any level of gestation is murder. Now let me say this this morning, take a time out here. The reality is, is that some of you in this room this morning or maybe watching online, you have had abortions in the past. Let me say this to you. God is on record for forgiving murder. 
And God can give great mercy and grace here today. So don't take this to hear that this sin makes you unforgivable in the eyes of God. That is absolutely not true. But we also need to recognize that abortion itself is a violent act because it is the killing of someone who is created in the image of God, which is ultimately what is the greatest atrocity in murder. The second fact that we need to know about God's command to not murder is that it reveals to us that everyone who is murdered is killed, but not everyone who is killed is murdered. Let me say that again. Everyone who is murdered is killed, but not everyone who is killed is murdered. Now, some of you, you may have memorized the Ten Commandments as children, maybe memorized it from the King James Version. And if that's the case, Exodus 20, verse 13, doesn't say you shall not murder. You would memorize it as thou shalt not what? Kill. Now, the reason why the more modern Old Testament translators have decided to use the word murder instead of kill is because it more closely communicates what God is trying to say in this passage. See, we understand this. In the, he, in the, the Hebrew language and the English language are similar in that we have words, different words, that are basically saying the same thing but give us a little bit minute uh, differences there. Let me give you an example. If I go home today and I say that my lunch was good or I say my lunch is delicious, I'm basically saying the same thing, but I'm giving you a little bit different twist on it. If I go home this afternoon and I make spaghetti, my kids will likely say that lunch was good. But if mama goes home and makes spaghetti, my kids will likely say lunch was delicious. Okay, now the difference is... Both of them are basically saying the same thing. Is They had a positive experience. But to say that something was delicious speaks specifically to its taste of the meal. But if I say that lunch is good, then it's talking about the overall experience. It could be the environment. It could be the setting. And it could be the, 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 the taste of the food comparative to the fact that dad tried. It's good, you know. So, so that could be kind of what's going on there. The reality is, in the Hebrew word... There are several different words that describe one person taking another person's life. One of the most frequent words in the Old Testament to refer to a person killing someone, I'm going to butcher, by the way, all you Hebrew scholars out here, butcher this pronunciation is harag, which means to kill or to slay. But it's more general terms. The, The word could be used to describe any situation in which a person is killed by another person. However, that's not the word that's used here in Exodus 20. In Exodus 20, thou shalt not murder is the Hebrew word rasak, which is only used 40 times in the Old Testament, and it most frequently refers, yes, to someone. It also means to kill, but it means to kill someone in an illegal or unjust way. Basically, to murder someone. Now you say, Pastor Zach, why does this matter? The reason why this matters is that according to Scripture, there are moments when people are murdered. They are killed in an illegal, unjust way. However, according to Scripture, that's not always the case. Not every person who is killed is murdered. Old Testament scholar Walter Kaiser pointed out several moments in Scripture where the taking of a life is not considered murder. Now let me give you a few of those this morning. First, according to Scripture, it is not considered murder when someone kills an animal. Now you say, Pastor Zach, why are we starting there? Surely we all understand that. Well, 
in our society today, that's not always the case. In many states in our nation, uh, it is illegal to kill uh, baby sea turtles, but it is absolutely legal to destroy children in the womb, an abortion. So we have to differentiate the two. The Bible makes it very clear that the killing of an animal is not wrong or unjust. In First Peter, in, in uh, Acts chapter 10, verse 13, Jesus told Peter, he said, get up, Peter, kill and eat, speaking of animals. And then in Genesis 9, 3, the Lord told Noah after, they, after the great flood, he says, every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I ate at Dreamland in Tuscaloosa yesterday. Hallelujah to this commandment. Now, the reality is that the reason why... Now, that doesn't mean that killing an animal is never unjust or wrong, and it can be. You can... Uh, kill an animal that doesn't belong to you. You can kill an animal that's not a nuisance. You can be hunting and kill an animal you don't plan to, to eat. And I think that there's some, some wrong ways that you can steward God's creation. But killing an animal is never murder. And the reason why that is is because you cannot murder something that was not created in the image of God. You can kill it. You can even unjustly kill it. But it's never murder. Secondly, according to Scripture, and this is where we get into the more important, speaking of people, it's not considered murder when a person accidentally kills another person. And this is what we would consider manslaughter. In Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 5, Moses gives an example of an accidental death. He says, when a man goes into the forest with his friend to cut wood and his hand swings the axe to cut down the tree and the iron head slips off the handle and strikes his friend so that he dies, he may flee to one of these cities and live. He's talking about cities of refuge. Now, church, the Bible makes it clear that some deaths are not caused by people or that are caused by people have no ill intent. They're just accidents. And this is hard for us to wrap our mind around. It's hard for us to wrap our mind around God's plan in some of these moments. But we need to recognize that we don't always understand God's perfect plan in these things that if a person is killed by another person and there's not uh, ill intent, there's not uh, a negligence, uh, blatant negligence, then this is just an accident. And that person is not to be held as a murderer. Let me say something to you this morning. Some of you in this room, or some of you may be watching online, you have been in this situation. You have been in a car accident or you've been in a situation where someone died and you had a hand in that. I want you to know something this morning. That according to God, I would say the same way that God cared for these people with the cities of refuge, God wants to care for you. And you don't need to bear that on your soul. Thirdly, according to Scripture, it's not considered murder when a person kills someone to protect themselves or their property. In Exodus chapter 22, verse 2, Moses speaks to the innocence of those who kill another person while protecting themselves or their property. It says, if the thief is caught while breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there will be no blood guiltiness on his account. Now, the meaning of the term blood guiltiness here basically means this person is innocent. Church, I, I believe that God gives you the right to protect your person and your property. If a person is willing to break into your home while you are there, they are also likely willing to harm you. 
You know, our prayer should be that God would be our defender and guard against us in these types of situations. But if we are ever faced with a situation where God allows me to be in a situation where I can defend myself, I pray that God would empower me to be able to do that as part of my responsibility. However, I believe that this should never be something that we boast about or hope for. You know, I hear people... I've probably been guilty of it myself at different times. It kind of sounds manly to say, well, if somebody comes in my house, I've got something waiting on them on the other side. That is very hard to square with the words of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 and 39, Jesus said, You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for the tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. Friends, I believe that it is in the design of God for us to desire life and to live. And I believe that God has given us the right to defend ourselves and our families. But it should always be done with great soberness. Because all people are created in the image of God. And let me just say this. This is my personal opinion. Outside of defending my family and myself, there is not one thing that I own that is worth taking somebody's life over if I can avoid it. And then fourthly, according to Scripture, it's not murder to kill during just war. Now, I'm not saying just war as in war. It's just war flippantly. But talking about war that is just Now, if you look at Israel's history of warfare, there were obviously times when God called his people to go to war, which also meant to take life. Now, the difference in the Old Testament nation of Israel and today is that the nation of Israel was a theocracy. God was the head of the nation of Israel. And so any war that he sent them into was automatically just because God had proclaimed it just The reality is is that for New Testament Christians and for us here today, we do not live in a theocracy, meaning that God is not the national head of any nation. Jesus did not come to create a kingdom that is of this world. And that's the the reason why we need to be very careful when preachers and teachers will say that, that God is the head of America, that God gives special treatment to America. That would be very offensive to our brothers and sisters in Christ on the other side of the world. God came to create a kingdom that is not of this world, a kingdom of heaven that one day will come to this world when he sets up his rightful rule on this earth. But while we're here, we exist under the authority of governments and nations. And those governments and nations have armies. And the Bible seems to point to the fact that Christians are permitted to serve in the national armies, which at times means to go to war and perform the functions of soldiers. When Jesus was talking about submitting to governing authorities in Matthew 22, verse 21, he says, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but render to God the things that are God's. In 2 Timothy 2, 4, Paul talked positively about the occupation of a soldier, which he wouldn't have done if it was an evil occupation. He says, No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him As a soldier, we have historical facts that there were Christians who were Roman soldiers who served in the army of Rome. Now, great church father, St. Augustine, in roughly 400 A.D., he discussed the question, can Christians fight in war? 
And he essentially came to the conclusion that yes, they can, as long as it is a just war, which is where theologians today and, and philosophers today use the terminology, the just war theory. And basically, Augustine said Christians can fight in war as long as that war meets a few criteria. He said first that the war had to be a just war, was a war that it was the last resort, where diplomacy and negotiations should be the first chance. We should try to do everything we can to avoid war. Secondly, he said a just war has to have a just cause. There's got to be a good reason to go to war. And most naturally, the best, best wars are defensive, are, are defensive wars. You are protecting yourself or you're protecting others. And thirdly, he said a just war is one where the costs of the war are proportionate to the cause. Basically, not every cause is worth going to war over. And then finally, he said the war needs to be legitimately authorized by recognizable authorities. Basically, two street gangs can't say, we're going to war, and it'd be a just war. Vigilantes can't just come together and say, we're going to war, and it'd be a just war. It was this criteria that helped lead a lot of German citizens who were even German military officials to leave the country or to, or, or to resign from the military. Many of them, even at the cost of their own lives, under Hitler's regime because they could not square the cause with the ability to serve in that military. However, for many Christian soldiers in America today, they can clearly see their efforts in war as something that was pleasing to God. One of my longtime uh, friends, Jared Hudson, was a uh, Navy SEAL, and, and he's a devout Christian. And several years ago, while Jared was still in the SEAL teams, uh, Kimberly and I were living in Memphis, and they were doing some training in that area, and we met up, and we went fishing. It was like we picked back up. We were 16, 17-year-olds, uh, Jared and Zach again, and we went fishing in a local pond. And as we were fishing, I got to talk to him about his experiences and, and some of the experiences that he had as a soldier but Jared seemed very well adjusted. A lot of our soldiers come back from those moments bearing a lot of struggles. And we need to pray for them and support them in those things. And I asked him, I said, Jared, why are you able to shoulder this so much better than, than others? And he gave me some practical reasonings in his training. But then he made one statement. I'll never forget this. He said, Zach, part of it is because I see God in what I do. According to Romans 13... He saw himself as a minister of God to ultimately be a part of God's judgment against evil in this world. Basically, he knew that he was fighting just wars. And as a believer, he could do that. Church, I believe that we're blessed to live in a nation, and that in the American nation. I'm so thankful for the men and women who have fought honorably to protect us. I believe these soldiers are great gifts from God to us. Can we get a big amen to our soldiers this morning? <coughs> and then lastly, according to Scripture, it's not considered murder when a person is executed by capital punishment. Now, let me say this on the front end. There are differing opinions from very godly Christian people on where Christians should stand on the topic of capital punishment. And I would say even these are scripturally defendable positions on both sides. I personally believe that a good and just society should have 
capital punishment as part of its laws. However, a longtime Christian friend of mine who has been doing prison ministry for over a decade, the last five years on death row, this man has walked men to their deaths. I called him this last week and I asked him what his opinion was on the rightness of the death penalty. And this is what he said. He said, Zach, I don't fault anyone uh, for the support of capital punishment. He said, I did for most of my life. But now, he said, he can no longer support it after what he has seen and experienced. Let me say this to you. I say that to say that regardless of where you stand on this, we can disagree and all be well. Okay, This is, this is a disagreeable place. However... Regardless of where you stand on what the Christian response should be personally to capital punishment, the reality is that the Bible makes it clear that capital punishment of the guilty, especially those guilty of murder, is not a murderous act. When a government executes a murderer, that government is not committing murder in the eyes of God. That's important to know. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, again, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. In Romans 13, 1 through 4, Paul is calling Christians to submit to governing authorities. It's a great passage for us to read at some point. However, in verse 4, we see that the government has the right to use the death penalty, and at times, that right is even a vessel of God for bringing justice on this earth. Look with me at Romans chapter 13, verse 4. It says, For it, speaking of governing authorities, is a minister of God to you for good. But if what you do is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Now, this passage is important because the phrase when it talks about the government's ability to bear the sword is absolutely a reference to capital punishment. Swords can wound and swords can kill. In in this passage, the government authority basically serves and is a minister of God. It is an avenger on this earth. Does that mean that everything the government does is right? No, absolutely not. But there are times when the government does this and they can do it in a right way. Now, don't misunderstand me to mean that God executes his final judgment on this earth through his government. That is far from truth. Listen, those who will endure the wrath, the highest wrath of our governments will experience a moment of death. But if they do not know Jesus, they will spend an eternity of death. So again, this does not, is not the death penalty is not God's final way of executing uh, his judgment on this earth. But it is an instance where God is executing a measure of judgment, an avenger of evil in this world. Jesus speaks about this in Matthew 10, 28. He says, Do not fear those who can kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him, God, who is able to destroy both the body and soul in hell. By the way, this is comfort to us because there are those who are murdered in this life that never receive justice in this life. But the truth is, is that God's justice will one day come. However, what Romans 13 does seem to point to the fact That it is right for a society to avenge evil in a way that is proportionate to the crime. 
I believe that this passage is telling us that an earthly response to avenge evil serves for our good. I don't believe that the death penalty, personally, I don't believe that it, that it keeps crime at bay. I don't believe that the death penalty keeps murderers from murdering. Why is that? Because uh, murder is such a lawless act. Lawless people don't, don't care about the acts of law. But what I do think it does is that it is good in that capital punishment brings, is it keeps our society's conscience where it needs to be. The death penalty ultimately reminds our society that evil acts must be punished An innocent life is sacred. In the same way that in Genesis 4, the Lord spoke to Cain and said that the blood of his brother cries out. I believe that the blood of the innocent cries out and a right and good society must say this act cannot stand. So according to the Bible... Not everyone who is killed is murdered. However, for those of us this morning, I want you to know this. Is that any time that somebody is killed, even if somebody is justly killed, it should never be something that we celebrate. It should always be something that we grieve because somebody who was created in the image of God has died. Our second question we need to answer this morning very quickly is, what does the commandment to not murder teach us today? Now, while everything we've talked about thus far is important for us to know, the reality is is that for most of us today, when you hear the commandment, thou shalt not murder, you kind of run past it because we think, you know, that doesn't really apply to me. You may say, Pastor Zach, you know, I got some struggles. That one ain't really one of it, you know, right now. I'm not really struggling with that one. Can I say, hey, praise God for that. I will say, if at some point you do begin to struggle with murder, you are welcome to come and sit down with our associate pastor, Zach Goforth, anytime, and he'd be happy to meet with you and counsel with you. But that being the case, there are a few things that this commandment does teach us today. Let me give you those. The first lesson that the command to not murder should teach us is that when murder happens, it should grieve our hearts as it does God's. Murder has been something that has been broken since the beginning. The first two brothers the world has ever known ended in one brother killing the other. But sadly, today, murder is something that we can hear about and not even flinch. Murder is something that is barely newsworthy in our culture today. In fact, honestly, the only time that most of us pay attention to murder is when it is presented to us in some form of entertainment. How many, if you ever get sick and you have to stay home from work and you flip through the channels, about every other channel is a real life documentary of somebody who got murdered. And they're not even made up, they're real moments. And this is entertainment. Church, is our heart become that calloused? You could say, Pastor Zach, you're stepping on some toes. Now, I may be. But if we can find things that God hates as entertainment, what's wrong with our soul? In 2021, there are approximately 23,000 homicides in our nation. In 2022, 370 homicides were in the state of Alabama. Also in that same year, 2022, there were 153 homicides in the city of Birmingham alone. Church, these are our neighbors. These people had families. These people had loved ones. They were created in the image of God. And he loved them and he had a purpose for them. This should grieve our soul. When we watch the news and we hear about another murder in our community, it should grieve us. We should stop to pray. 
Pray for justice. Pray for these communities. The second lesson that the command to not murder should teach us is that according to Jesus, murder begins in the heart. You know, often when Jesus addressed the Ten Commandments, he he didn't just speak to the sin. He spoke to the heart of the issue. And when he spoke about murder, he spoke, he, he labeled hatred as the birthplace of murder. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 20 through 22, Jesus said, You've heard that the ancients were told, You shall not murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, You good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, You fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. In 1 John 3.15, the Apostle John said, Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. Now, now we obviously know that hating someone is not as severe as actually killing them in our present day, according to our government. We understand that. However, what, what, what to hate somebody means, this is what Jesus is getting at, is if you hate someone, you're basically saying, I wish you were dead. I may not be willing to pull the trigger, But I wish that you would die. And God is saying there, if that's your heart to someone who has created my image, you are already guilty of being a murderer before me. Now, there are obvious moments in life when people's hatred towards others is wrong and unjust. I think about it in moments like racism. When we see people that hate other people because of their race, we automatically know that that hatred is wrong. Just, I was reminded of that just a couple of weeks ago. We went over uh, to the Warrior Community Service. A bunch of churches uh, from all over, evangelical churches from all over Warrior, came together and did a community service together. And I got to meet uh, some of our African-American brothers and sisters in Christ in the community. I got to meet the pastor who spoke. He was an African-American man from Warrior. And he did an incredible job. We're having lunch this next week to kind of uh, get to know each other a little bit better. And after I met him, he introduced me to his grandparents. And they were in their 80s, and I got my hamburger, and I sat down on a cooler next to them, and I started to chat with this lady. And, and I asked her, I said, are you from this community? And she said, oh, yes, I've, I'm from Warrior, born and raised. And so my grandmother, who's about the same age, uh, was also born from Warrior. And I said, well, did you know my grandmother? And I mentioned her name. And she said, no, honey, I, I don't think I know her. And I said, well, what year did you, did you go to school at Warrior? What year did you graduate? And she paused for a moment and had a little bit of an awkward look on her face. And she said, well, honey, my school only went to the ninth grade. And then I had to go to Birmingham to finish. She could tell that I was puzzled by this for a moment. And her husband, trying to save me some embarrassment, kind of spoke over and said, but that was a long time ago. And he smiled. I left there and I got on the phone with my grandfather. My grandmother's passed away now. And I called him. Hey, Papa, because that's what we call my grandfather, Papa and Granny. I said, Papa, when Granny went to Warrior, did she go to school with any African-American people? He said, no, buddy. She said, there weren't any African-American people at Warrior or Mormon Jordan then. They went to their school. And then I began to think about that, how that grieved my heart. If there was a, guys, that's not 100 years ago, by the way. I'm talking to a lady who experienced this. If there was people in our society not too long ago That's hatred towards others was not manifested in death or not in that situation. There were many others that were. But hatred was manifested by saying, I don't even want you to go to kids, to go to school with my kids. 
And what they were doing was they were not killing somebody's body, but they were killing their soul. And this is murder. And these people will stand before God for it one day. Now, you may say, well, Pastor Zach, that's not what we're struggling with today. But there are other areas where we can hate people that maybe when it doesn't seem to be so unjust. You know, there are things that people do that are wrong in the eyes of God. And if you're a Christian person, you can be grieved over that. You can, I believe that there are Christian people who wrongly hate people because of their politics. Or they hate people because of their lifestyle, the way that they live. Or they hate people because of their evil deeds, the things that they have done. And, and this, is, this is a slippery slope there. It can be a, a treacherous ground because there is the part of you that knows that what they're doing, what they're saying is wrong in the eyes of God. And that's right and good. But at the same time, we must guard our hearts to make sure that that doesn't go over towards hatred. It doesn't matter how much that you dislike a politician. You should never wish their death. It doesn't matter how much you disagree with somebody living a lifestyle and trying to draw other people into that that is outside of the will of God. You should never hate them. And you say, Pastor Zach, how do I get to that point? How do I love somebody if they've done evil deeds even against me? What do you do? Well, you have to look at them the same way that Jesus looked at you, who all also saw our sin saw our brokenness, but chose to not see our sin alone, but to see somebody created in the image of God. And he was willing even to go to the cross for it. Friends, we've got to be careful because we can just as easily break this commandment in the eyes of God. And then lastly this morning, I'm going to ask our instrumentalists to come. The final lesson that the command to not murder should teach us is that murderers need God's mercy. You know, everything about this commandment shows us that God is very serious about this sin, about the sin of murder. It's in the Ten Commandments. God's teaching on how harsh societies should treat murderers. Show us how serious God is against murder. Even the design of God within us that recoils at the thought of murder shows us that God is, that murder is completely outside of the design of God. And if this commandment teaches us anything, it is that this is broken in the eyes of God. This is absent of his heart. It teaches us that murderers are sinful in the sight of God. And as I was thinking this last week, just like every one of these Ten Commandments, when I see them, what are they intended to do? They're intended to show me my sin. But as I prayed this last week, I was in here on Bleak Tuesday Spending my hour with the Lord. And I don't say that boastfully. I just say that's part of our ministerial staff. Is that we, we require them to spend an hour with the Lord in prayer every day. Because uh, what we do is a spiritual work. And so as I was praying, I was reminded of how God pursues the lawless. I was reminded of how God pursued Zacchaeus. Jesus is walking down that road and he sees Zacchaeus in that tree. He says, Zacchaeus, today... I will eat with you in your house. This man was a thief. But Jesus pursued him. I thought about in John 4. How 
Jesus just so happened to find himself in the middle of the day beside that well in Samaria. There were that Samaritan woman who was an adulterer was there so that he could let her know that what she was looking for in life, she could never find anywhere else, but she could find in him. She was, he was pursuing the adulterer, telling her, I can satisfy your soul. And then if you go on to Acts chapter 9, the Bible says that Saul who is fresh off the blood of killing Stephen. And his hatred is enraged by now his authority to go further. The Bible says he's breathing threats, breathing murder, breathing murder against the church. Suddenly, a light from heaven shows up on a road to Damascus. And Jesus Christ lets a murderer know who he is. That there's grace and mercy to be found in him. You say, Pastor Zach, I'm not really struggling with murder this morning. I don't really know where this applies to me. Let me tell you what this reminds us of. As all these commands do, they remind us that we need a Savior, and there's a Savior who's available. Man, there's a Jesus who is pursuing those who are far from God. I don't know where you are this morning. As I prayed this morning, the one thing the Lord laid on my heart was to let you know, no matter where you are today, No matter what law you are bound up under today in your guilt and sin, know this today. Jesus is pursuing you. He says, come and find grace. Come and find forgiveness. Come and let me wash you clean. This is what he offers you today in his blood. If you'll come. Some of you this morning may need prayer. You're broken. You need to forgive somebody. You have hatred in your heart towards somebody. You need somebody to pray with you. That's what the church is here for today. You can come. Our pastors will be up front. We've got some of our ladies who are prayer partners who will be up front. If you need somebody to pray for you, you can come. If you need to join this church family, you need to come. If you don't know Jesus today and you say, Pastor Zach, I need forgiveness, come. Come today. And we'd love to pray for you. Make an altar out of your seat right there where you are as we sing.